this morning. So we just spent, I don't know, the last like five or six months or so in the Sermon on the Mount and really, really enjoyed that time. And uh, now we're going from a series that looked at just a handful of verses each morning to now we're working through a whole book, a a whole book over 12 weeks, a a chapter basically more or less a week. Uh, So longer texts, but it's a rich book. There's so much for us to glean here. So I'm really excited about this time together this summer in the book of Daniel. I'm excited about what the Lord's going to do here. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open those up, follow along. It'll also be available up here on the screen, or you can open up your device and follow along there. And if you are physically able to stand, would you mind standing to honor the reading of God's Word? Beginning in chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names gave them these names. Daniel he called Beltajar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all, their lit- in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this witness from the book of Daniel. We thank you for the journey that we get to embark on on this morning to study, to learn, to reflect uh, all that you have to teach us this summer. I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word, to receive your grace, to know you more, to trust you more, to walk more closely with you as a result of our time together. Lord, we pray that uh, you would be here, your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work, and you would guide us in your will. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Those are the heartfelt words of King David in Psalm 27. You may recognize them. And they express this yearning, this pining of the king's heart, which is centrally this, to see God. He wanted to see God, to gaze upon his beauty, to be in his presence, to dwell in his house. But they were not penned most likely from a place of comfort, in a place of ease, they were probably penned from a place of distress. David spoke about enemies that were advancing against him, who were besieging him, right? Whether that was happening figuratively or literally, there there was war kind of breaking out against him. And in the midst of this chaos, he returns again to his true confidence, the Lord his God. He yearns to behold him, to trust in his sovereignty and his goodness. And these are words that have resonated in the hearts and the mouths of believers down through millennia. Through times of drought, of despair, of distress, they've been the cry of an untold multitude. Maybe they've been a cry of yours. And this summer, we're beginning a new series in the book in Daniel. And Daniel was someone who was intimately familiar with seasons of distress and difficulty. This book uh, recounts harrowing examples and experiences of a few people as they lived in exile. It's a book of visions from the Lord, some pretty wild visions at times, about what would come then and what would come later. It's a book about the example of faith and courage in the face of trial. But most of all, it's a book about God. It's a book about the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the the sovereignty of God, the character and the work of God. In other words, this book that's about the life of Daniel is most fundamentally about the God of Daniel. 
the God whom Daniel knows and sees and yearns for and trusts in. And in fact, it's Daniel's seeing of God, as it were. It's Daniel's beholding of God, as it were, that sustained him through those difficulties. And there is so much for us to glean here in this book for our present age. My prayer for us as a church this summer is that we would see God. That like David prayed and like Daniel experienced and lived in his life, that we would gaze upon the beauty of God. That we would be in his presence, that we would dwell with him and he in us. And that our confidence and our trust in him would grow deeper than ever before because of that time. And through that, as a result of that, that we would be more equipped to live with a resilient faith as God's people in a world that is challenging, perplexing, and confusing sometimes. And so I hope that you will make that your prayer as well this summer. So each week as we work through this book, we're going to reflect on some specific attribute of God, some characteristic of God, some, some work of God, and examine how that truth about God can empower us to live in this world with an unshakable faith and courage. And the very first attribute of God that we see in this book, fittingly, is the faithfulness of God. The opening chapter emphasizes that even in trial, even in displacement, even in loss, that we have a God who is faithful. And in fact, that God is always faithful to his people, even when it's hard to see. So there are two ways that God demonstrates his faithfulness in this first chapter. We see that he's faithful to sanctify his people, and he's faithful to fortify his people. So we start with the sanctification process. And you know, this is, it's a book about exile. It's a book about judgment, in a way. There's some hard things in here, uh, but I I hope that this is is helpful and resonates with you this morning. And we see primarily this this faithfulness to sanctify really in the setting of the book, but also in the first few verses. So it's important to spend a little bit of time working through what is happening leading up to the events of Daniel here. Under the divided monarchy, if you remember, there's King David, Solomon, and then under Rehoboam, the, the monarchy in Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of, of Judah. But both kingdoms, over their history, at, at different, maybe at different rates of speed and in different ways, both kingdoms uh, moved into this practice, this rhythm of idolatry. I would say, you know, we might couch it as they fell into idolatry, but it's too passive, They actively sought out idol worship, right? They forgot God. They they didn't practice God's commands, and they worshiped the false gods of their neighbors, the ones that God had warned them about. And this was more rampant in the northern kingdom of Israel earlier on, and that led to the judgment of God coming against the northern kingdom from the uh, Assyrian Empire. They were conquered, they were defeated, and they were carried off into exile in 722 B.C. But even though 
those in Judah had these periods of renewal. They had a few good kings, right? They still were on this downward trajectory uh, over the next century plus, and they wound up basically in the same place. So as the Assyrian Empire began to wane in the late uh, 7th century BC, the Babylonians rose to power. You know, the opportunistically saw, saw this opportunity to take over, and so they rose to power. Uh, in a series of, of contests over about 20 years, they wore down and eventually defeated the Assyrians and took over all the territory that they uh, controlled after the defeat of Carchemish in 605 B.C. And just shortly after that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, died and his son took over, ascended to power, and that man was Nebuchadnezzar, a name that's familiar perhaps to us. And over those following 20 years, the Judean kingdom protested and rebelled against the Babylonian occupation and against the tribute that they had to pay uh, as part of belonging to this empire, which led to sieges on Jerusalem in 597 and then eventually the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, especially the destruction of the temple. So, over the course of those 20 years, the people of Judah were forcibly carried off to live in Babylon in waves. They were taken off into exile. This is called the period of the exile in uh, Jewish history. And Daniel and his friends were among the first who were to be carried off in exile in 605, just after Nebuchadnezzar came to power. We see here in verse 1, Daniel was, was carried off uh, and he remained in exile for the rest of his life. And although there's some debate about the book's dating, exactly when it was written, all that is probably from there that Daniel wrote this book in the 6th century. So that is the setting for the book. That's what's happening here. And we see right from the start how the hand of God is present in the life of Daniel in an extraordinarily dark, distressing period of history. An extraordinarily dark and distressing period of his life. But you look at how Daniel understands God to be at work. In verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Daniel, writing about this experience, identifies this as coming from the Lord. The Lord gave. Which naturally leads us to the question of why. Why on earth would God allow his people to be conquered and carried off into exile? Why would he allow them to endure that? And for a couple of reasons, but both of them have to do with God's faithfulness. First of all, God was being faithful to his covenant with them. You remember the Lord had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he made a covenant with them that he would be their God, that they would be his people. What an extraordinary gift, an extraordinary opportunity. I think Moses recounted it in Deuteronomy. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them? the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. This is an extraordinary blessing. 
God set them free from slavery. He was with them. He made them. He, he was their God. But the Israelites also got the privilege of being the people of God. They got to belong to him, to be his people. And they got to represent him to the surrounding nations to be his people. But in the covenant, God warned his people about the dangers of rebelling against him. There are a couple places where he recounts this in the Pentateuch, but one of them is in Leviticus, in Leviticus 26. And God outlines the blessings and the curses of this covenant. And this was the conventional structure for a legal agreement in the day. So God was kind of speaking to them in their language, right? You had the parties and the terms and then the blessings and the curses that came. The blessings if you abide by this, the curses if you don't, right? So this was uh, very much contextualized language for them. And he says, "If if you walk with me, if you obey my commandments, I will bless you you'll experience all of these tremendous blessings. But if you do not listen to me, if you do not keep my commandments, if you walk contrary to me, then you'll experience calamity. And he outlines in Leviticus 26 these series of incremental calamities that would come. It would start like your enemies will start to have victory over you, and then they're going to come in and you're not going to have food because they're going to wipe out all of your harvests. And you'll start to have diseases crop up amongst you. Things of that nature. And then he says, if you still won't listen to me and you walk contrary to me, then the next round of calamities will come. The sky is going to be shut. The ground will be hardened so that it won't produce a crop. And so on. And he goes through this rhythm of incremental punishments in four or five degrees. But it leads eventually up to the destruction of their cities and them being scattered to foreign lands. And so, we can guess what happens, right? This came in Leviticus, this came in the Pentateuch. It's kind of like in a movie, you know, early on where you see some, you get a zoom in of like some tripping hazard or something. You, get, you see a kitchen utensil that's like, why is that? Why are we zooming in on this kitchen utensil? Uh, or there's a car that's having trouble starting, right? You just know what's coming later on. Uh, somebody's going to get wiped out <laughs> by that tripping hazard. Someone's going to be in the business end of that rolling pin. Uh, somebody's going to struggle to get the car started in a chase scene. You know you know it's coming. Well, the Israelites did not listen. They did not obey. They didn't walk with God as they should have. And they rebelled over and over and over again. And God is true. He's the author of truth. And so he was true to his word. He was faithful to uphold his covenant. As I was talking with Marion last week, he said, God keeps his promises. And it's true. There's a second reason why God allowed them. He allowed them to go into exile in order to change them. He did not want to leave them where they were. This was the consequence of their sin, but there was a purpose to this consequence. And this is illustrated really poignantly in the life of Hezekiah. Do you remember the king, Hezekiah? 2 Kings 18, 19, 20, you get three stories, three little vignettes about his life that are extraordinary. He first 
is the king of Judah, and the Assyrian army, this massive Assyrian army, is camped outside the walls of Jerusalem. They're knocking on his door. They've already destroyed the northern kingdom, and they're about to destroy him. And what does he do? He comes and he cries out in desperation to God. And Isaiah the prophet comes and he says, fear not, paraphrasing here, fear not, Jerusalem will be delivered. The next morning, they wake up and the Assyrian army is wiped out. 185,000 dead outside the walls of Jerusalem. God supernaturally, miraculously delivered them and they retreated. Next, Hezekiah became gravely ill. He was on death's door, and he again, he cried out to God in desperation. And God answered his prayer. Isaiah came, he gave him instructions about how he would be healed, and he was healed. His life was extended. But then, after Hezekiah was healed, the Babylonians heard about his illness, and they sent an envoy to Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't it wasn't like, you know, they, they sent a gift. It wasn't like a, a fruit basket and a get-well card, you know? This, this meant something. This was a diplomatic mission from the Babylonian State Department, if you will. And they were seeking to secure an alliance with a regional power that would help them to unseat the Assyrians and the Egyptians. That was their motive. And what did Hezekiah do? Do you remember? Did he seek the Lord? Did he go to the Lord in prayer? Did he, res- did he respond and say, you know, we are kind of set. We've got the best political alliance that you could ask for in the one true king. Thank you very much. No, it says he welcomed them in. And in fact, he showed them everything that they had. He opened up the storehouses. He showed them all their wealth, all their treasuries. And after they left, Isaiah the prophet came and he said, what have you done? He said to them, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This was over a hundred years before Daniel. How did Hezekiah respond? The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? God supernaturally delivered Hezekiah. He saved him. He healed him. He extended his life. And how did he respond? Hezekiah trusted in a political alliance with a pagan foreign nation, not in God himself. And he did it for one reason, for security. Hezekiah serves as an example of the pattern of God's people. Even after the supernatural works of God on their behalf, even after encountering the living God, even after being instructed on how to live as God's people, 
There's a pattern of unbelief, of idolatry, of self-reliance, of injustice. And so God allowed the punishments for breaking the covenant to unfold so that his people could see not just where the pattern would lead, but that they would see their deep need for change. And that's what God wanted to accomplish in his people. And all of us, likewise, are in need deeply of change. You know, as tempting as it may be to consider ourselves more mature, kind of more self-aware, perhaps more objective, the reality is that we share the same spiritual condition of our uh, predecessors of uh, 2,700 years. We see it in the society all around us, and we see it in ourselves. How many ways do we, like Hezekiah, put our trust in a political party or an outcome? Left, right, or center? How often do we look to the next election cycle for hope or think if we just get this candidate or if we only accomplish this strategy, then things will go well, and yet we're left frustrated again and again by an imperfect system, by flawed politicians, by legislative gridlock, by an abuse of power and corruption and deception. How many ways do we, like the Israelites, make something in this world the chief object of our delight, the hope of our heart? How often do we fall prey to thinking, if I just get this accomplishment or this experience or this possession then I'll be satisfied we dream about it we strategize for it we chase after it we finally get it and then it becomes another line on the resume that's stored on our computer one kilobyte difference or it becomes another trip that we forget or it becomes another trinket that sits on the shelf and collects dust As good as those things may be, we can't help but feel the sense of of disappointment that they didn't deliver what we expected. How many ways and times do we perceive something in this world as more beautiful than God? A person, a status, an identity. And we think, if only this person loved me, or if only I was seen in this way, or if only I could kind of create this identity, then then I'll be fulfilled. Only to discover that the luster doesn't last. The person like you is imperfect. They fail you, they wound you, even in the best of relationships. They can't love you perfectly like you need to be loved. We feel the hollowness left by our pursued identity and we, we see that it is empty and dependent on our performance. There must be more. There has to be more. And there is more. But to experience that, we have to be changed. We desperately need to be changed. And this is the extraordinary message of Scripture that we see in part here and we see in full in the New Testament. That that is exactly what God is working to do in us, to change us. He wants to change us exactly in the ways and the places that we need him to. He wants to make us into what we we were created to be. He wants us to be renewed, to be transformed. He wants us to be sanctified, to be 
to be set apart for him and to find in him our all in all as we were designed to. To rely upon him, to trust in him alone and nothing else. To worship and delight in him supremely. To live in faithful service and obedience to him and nothing else. And it's the amazing testimony of this passage and the witness of scripture that he is faithful to work for our sanctification. He is faithful to work in our lives towards that end. You know, and it's a lot like parenting. If you have little kids, you'll relate to this. Uh, With small children, you have to correct them often. There are often consequences for misbehavior, you know, like on days where the sun's shining or days that end in Y, that has to happen. But along with those consequences come explanations, right? Most parents, if they really want the the best of their kids, if they want what's for the good of their kids, the goal of, of discipline is not just like, it's not punitive. They want their kids to change. They want their kids to, to think about what they've done. Which, man, that's the most dad saying I've ever said. They, they want their kids to reflect on their decisions, to evaluate their values, to think about how they can respond differently, to view others differently. Right? The goal is not the, the, the change of behavior alone. It's a change of a heart. It's a change of a heart in the formation of a character. And so parents work to affect that change through instruction, through teaching, through listening, through relationships, through building trust, through care and encouragement and counsel and a million other proactive ways, but also through reactive measures like discipline and correction and the slow and often painstaking process of teaching them a better way to live. And like a parent, God works through proactive and positive measures measures to teach us. And he works through the challenging circumstances of life, the pain, the sorrows, the difficulties, to help us to reflect and to, to see who we are and who he is. And he works through the reactive measures of discipline, just like he did for Israel. And in all of that, he is seeking our good and the transformation of our lives. So he is faithful to sanctify. And secondly, and more briefly, we see the second way he's faithful in this passage, that he is faithful to fortify his people. You know, these these young men, they were the best and the brightest that Judah had to offer. They were taken from Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And of course, they needed some training. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take them and and use them in his kingdom, and so that would require some training. It would require an education in the ways and the customs and the beliefs of the Babylonians, in their literature and their arts and their culture, and most of all in their religion. But this wasn't an education that was meant to build on the foundation of their worldview that had been laid in their youth, right? This was a forced re-education. In other words, they were taken to Babylon to be indoctrinated in a Babylonian worldview. And this was the kind of modus operandi of the Babylonian Empire. You know, the, the Assyrians, their foreign policy was terrorization. They ruled by fear. If everyone feared you, 
then they would stay in their place. And so they did all kinds of grisly things, like beheading their enemies and piling their carcasses up in a pyramid outside the, the city that they had just ransacked. And they, sent, they did that as a message to send to anyone else who would threaten them, who would dare to rebel. That was the foreign policy of the Assyrians. The, the Babylonians had a different foreign policy. It wasn't terrorization, it was assimilation. They didn't seek to engender loyalty through fear, but rather through a flattening of cultural differences. And so what they would do is they would go and they'd carry away the best of the people of these vassal states. They'd carry them away into Babylon and they'd indoctrinate them in Babylonian lore and practices and a worldview. And they would assimilate their subjects into their culture using their exiles' talents for their purposes and all the while weakening their resolve to fight back. So that was their foreign policy. And you see the tactics that they used here in this chapter. Along with a three-year re-education in language and literature, they were to eat choice food provided from the king himself. And Daniel and his friends were given new names. All their original names were in relation to Yahweh, right? God is my judge, Yahweh is gracious, Yahweh is my helper. And they gave them new names that had to do with the Babylonian religion and the gods of Bel or Aku. And Daniel, when this was happening, he immediately felt the danger. He saw and he felt the danger. As you can imagine, feasting like a king for three years can make you accustomed to a certain kind of lifestyle, right? One that would be entirely dependent on eating from what the king provided. And so we deduce that Daniel recognized that as a method to gradually make him and his friends replace their trust and their dependence in God with a dependence on King Nebuchadnezzar. But not only that, the name changes show you how overtly they were trying to accomplish this goal. And Daniel feared that by just passively going along with the system, that day by day, meal by meal, book by book, summon by summon, that slowly, gradually, but inevitably, his former identity as a faith-filled man of God would be eroded. Until eventually, he woke up one day, <clears throat> and he looked around, and he discovered that he looked and believed and he behaved just like everyone else around him. So he felt the existential danger, and he looked for a way to resist. Anything that he could do, even the smallest bit of control that he could wield, where he was actively and deliberately exercising his faith. And so what did he do? He resolved not to defile himself by eating the meat or the wine provided by Nebuchadnezzar. He made a plan to decline the choicest portions of the food provided to create a daily ritual of faith. So every time that he sat down to eat, and everyone else got the meat and the wine, and he sat down with the, not just the vegetables, but fruit and grains also. And he, sat, he sat down and ate that. He would remember who he was, and who his God was, and who he really trusted in and depended on. And in so doing, he would maintain his identity as belonging to and depending on God. And look at what God did. Look at how God provided for Daniel and his friends. It says, again, the theme 
Remember, God gave them over. Here again, God gave Daniel favor. He was able to persuade his handlers to, to reduce his diet, even though there was a real risk to the steward's life. He was, he was willing to go along with it. So for 10 days, Daniel and his friends ate only that, that food grown from seed. And at the end of the experiment, they, they were healthier. They, were, they appeared more vigorous. They appeared fatter. So, you know, if you're doing the Daniel diet, try to lose weight. I don't know if that's going to work. God, God nourished them, right? He sustained them. And then later in verse 17, it says, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and, and dreams. So as they, they worked at their studies, as they disciplined themselves, God blessed them so that they would excel above all of their peers, above all their contemporaries. Which I'm sure if some of you are students here, beginning of semester, you're saying, I will take that. I will take that blessing. Certainly they committed themselves to work, but God empowered them to do well. And the result was what? They were elevated above their peers. And as we see throughout the book, then through that elevation, God used them to influence those in the highest ranks of the Babylonian government and the Persian government to follow. God was faithful to sustain, to provide, to nourish, to uphold, and to bless his people, even in the midst of the challenges pressing in on them at every side. God fortifies his people for their good and his purposes in this world. And the point of application here could be, could be multiple, but we'll end with just this one. That like our ancient friends living in Babylon, we too live in a culture and a world that seeks our assimilation. We don't have the perspective of being uprooted from another place and being brought here so that we can immediately see the threat. Rather, we're born into it. We're raised up in it. And so like the frog in the kettle being brought slowly to a boil, we're largely oblivious to the relentless forces being exerted to assimilate our minds and our hearts and our wills into, the, into conformity with the prevailing worldview. This isn't just an American problem, by the way, although it's certainly present in America. But how do we see this in our land, in our day? Well, it's a worldview that is a 21st century Western Enlightenment, late modern secular framework. It's propelled not only by uh, the Industrial Revolution, but by the sexual revolution of recent history and by the budding technological revolution of the present. And that framework includes values like this. Your identity is derived from your desires. Your fulfillment is found in actualizing your internal longings. Your greatest fulfillment is found in the pursuit and realization of sexual gratification. You are the author of your own meaning. Personal ambition should be your primary aim. Happiness comes through material accumulation. And all beliefs and viewpoints are equally valid and should be celebrated. Unless, of course, you don't accept that premise. And a hundred other ideas like that. 
And there's a relentless pressure on us to accept those values. Nearly everything we do, everywhere we go, we will get that message on TikTok videos, on Instagram posts, in ads, on popular podcasts, on talk shows, in the plot of the Netflix shows that you watch. Everywhere you turn, that is the worldview that you are being re-educated with. And the goal, make no mistake about it, the goal is assimilation to a worldview that is devoid of absolute truth or meaning or morality because it's a worldview devoid of God. Or at least devoid of a God that can in any way challenge me, correct me, or call me to change. And so if we, like Daniel, don't recognize the pressure for what it is and take steps to resist it, we will absolutely get washed away. We must take steps to actively remember our true identity. We need to put into place rhythms of remaining dependent on God to establish boundaries and the streams of influence that are coming in for our assimilation and instead to create alternate rhythms where we rest in the stream of God's grace and nourish our dependence upon him. And we must remember that our God is faithful to fortify his people. He's with us. You know, Daniel experienced the tremendous faithfulness of God. But 600 years after Daniel, God revealed his faithfulness in a deeper and a grander and a more marvelous way than ever before. In Christ, God shows us the extent of his faithfulness, that there was no cost that he would not pay to save us. And in the death and the resurrection of Christ, we see God sacrificing in the greatest imaginable way to sanctify us and to fortify us in the ways that we desperately need. To cleanse us and to forgive us of our sin through the atoning death of Christ. To give us the righteousness of Christ through faith. And to give us not only his righteousness, but to give us his very self. His presence to dwell within us, to sustain us, to strengthen us, to counsel us, to encourage us, to walk with him. So in Christ, God is working to sanctify and to fortify us in a deeper, more personal, more profound way than ever before. And that is the good news of the gospel that we have, the gift to be received. I pray that we will receive that and rejoice in that again today. Amen.